Hey, Cinemaholics friends. This is John, and just John, for, for just a second, while I have you, before we start the show and we talk about all the movies that you want to hear about, we want to start the with a little bit of a thing at the top here to support our local art house theaters. You might have heard of this thing. We've mentioned it on the show before, virtual cinema. And it's a way for you to support the brick-and-mortar cinema buildings that are still open, thankfully. Uh, a lot of them are still open. There might be one in your area. And one thing that they're trying to do to stay afloat during this very difficult time, where in a lot of places around America in particular, it is not convenient and is not safe to frequent a cinema. So these virtual cinemas are a great way for you to go online and watch some movies, which we, of course, all love to do here at Cinemaholics. And there are three virtual cinemas supported by three local theaters that we want to point out in particular because, as you know, Will, Abby, and myself are in three different metro areas, and each of these places has a an art house theater that we want to support. So I'm just going to run through them real fast, tell you about them real quick, and then the show will go on. So the first one, we, we got to start with Abby's. And it is the Screenland Armor Theater. And I should say we have links to these theaters in the show notes for you. But you can check out this online virtual cinema at screenlandonline.com. This is the Kansas City Independent Cinema. I believe it's in North Kansas City, if I'm not mistaken. And what's great about this one is you can check out some movies right away that we talk about on the show this week. One of them is the 20th Century, which, all, you know, not to give anything away, but um, we have a fun review of that movie and definitely recommend you check it out. And also Zappa, which is a film I saw that I hope some people have time as a documentary to check out. There's also things like The Donut King and um, 12 Hour Shift. There's a bunch of stuff. Uh, Assassins, which uh, is going to be coming out in, I think, a few weeks. You'll be able to watch that. So check out Screenland online. And then also Row House. This is the one for that's like near Will Ashton. So it's in like the Pittsburgh area and Row House right now is screening Divine Love. I haven't seen Divine Love, but I've heard really good things about it. You can uh, watch it using an online virtual ticket. And I should say, uh, according to the Row House website, 50% of each purchase goes directly to helping Row House through what's going on because obviously it's very difficult to run a movie theater when COVID is a thing. So I definitely want to support that and then finally my theater out here in the bay area this is the roxy theater which is san francisco's one of san francisco's nonprofit cinemas and it's definitely one of my favorites i wish i could support more but i got to pick one and the one probably closest to my heart is the roxy and the roxy has a virtual cinema they have a lot of really great selections um, they also are playing zappa if you are curious in that one and 20th century uh, there's a bunch of other ones too. You can you can watch uh, Coded Bias, which is a Sundance documentary that I've heard really good things about. I'm planning to check out as soon as this week. Uh, also playing City Hall, which is one of Will Ashton's favorite films of the year. He reviewed that via TIFF uh, not too long ago. There's also Monsoon, The Donut King, which I mentioned before. There's tons of great choices. So the Roxy Cinema, the Row House Cinema, and the Screenland Armor Cinema please look into supporting those if you have the means and if you're ready to watch some pretty terrific movies.
welcome once again to Cinemaholics. From the Bay Area, I am John Negroni, Editor-in-Chief of Cinemaholics from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend. He's even hosted Cinemaholics last week. It's Will Ashton. Hey. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, of course. From Kansas City, she is the film editor for The Pitch with bylines at Slash Film, Crooked Marquee, RogerEber.com, probably your heart. It's Abby Olchesi. Hello. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com. You can even find written reviews, features, and interviews. If you have something to say to us, if you just want to get something off your chest, you've been holding it in. We have an email. It's open to all. It's cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. You can find it in the show notes. And we hope we hope you uh, reach out because we love reading your emails, your thoughts on the films that we talk about, and feedback on the show. And of course, we have our Patreon. We love our patrons. So if you're interested in supporting us financially to help us keep the show going, you can go to patreon.com slash cinemaholics and find all the tiers and stuff. And it's it's pretty, pretty simple, pretty easy to jump into that. And if you want to support Cinemaholics, you're like, I need something in return here. Okay. Like, I want to rep Cinemaholics. I want to go out there and show the world. The Cinemaholics podcast is on my playlist. Well, you can check out our merch page just in time for the holidays. I think if you order right now, you can give your loved one a Cinemaholics hoodie, a Cinemaholics shirt, mug, shot glass, and you can you can give it to your significant other, your friend, your boss, your coworker, even your enemies. Show them that you have something in common, which is of course you both love Cinemaholics, I'm sure. So you can find our merch page on cinemaholics.com uh, under the merch tab. So we've been selling a decent bit of merch this past week. Um, and I was very excited about that and I hope more people do so. But I found out this past week that uh, my family <laughs> just bought a bunch of hoodies and um, t-shirts from the Cinemaholic site. And so I can send a yeah. picture if anyone's curious. Uh, there's a picture of us all in our Cinemaholics merch. If you want to now that's that a Christmas card. Yeah. It might be. Hope, is the shot glass in there? Uh, no, unfortunately not. But we wouldn't be able to see if we could. But uh, if anyone wants to see that, um, let us know. And uh, maybe I'll throw it on the Twitter page or something. We'll see. Awesome. I think you should just do it. Don't don't wait to ask for forgiveness, not permission. But uh, that's awesome. And uh, thank you, the Ashton family, for joining in on the merch craze. Uh, we have been selling a lot of merch. And yeah, it's, it's good to hear that uh, people are wearing it out in the wild, especially in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, one of our home bases. All right, we have a pretty heavy episode. Lots of stuff to talk about, lots of reviews, of course. And uh, again, I have to thank you, Will and Abby, for taking over the show last week. Those of you curious, just going through some personal stuff, um, kind of unexpected. And so that's why I wasn't on the show last week. I'm very sad about that. I did watch the main film run. And, you know, my my two cents on it is I basically agree with Abby and Will almost like to a T on that film. I'm like a B on it. And I, I enjoyed watching it, just not as good as searching, in my opinion. And Will, what you said about searching was incorrect, but you know that already, that you didn't think it's that great. But oh, well. That's the perks of being the host that week. I can have the definitive yeah. opinion on searching and you can't do anything about it. But uh, alas, <laughs> That's right. I mean, I like searching. I don't I feel I'm kind of equal in my opinions on those films, but I can see the appeal of why some people think searching is better than run. I, I'm definitely one of those people. 
Uh, okay, so off topics, we have a new extra milestone that'll be out by the time you're listening to this. It is a little late this week. We apologize. Uh, but this is a big one. So the wait is going to be worth it. Sam Nolan talked about Raging Bull, the film from 1980 from Martin Scorsese, one of his best. I think probably my second favorite Martin Scorsese film and one that I love going back to time and time again. It's celebrating a film anniversary. So 1980, that's 50, no, not 50 years, 40 years. I can't do math. Um, but then also a little farther back, they talked about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is celebrating its film anniversary. That Jack Nicholson film came out in 1975. That's a film that I've seen like two times in the last couple of years. And I don't know why I, I, I'm so enamored by that film, um, even though I have some interesting little quibbles with it but you can check out that extra milestone right now uh, hopefully we'll have it out by the time you're listening to it and i'm keeping my promise there but okay will ashton you you saw so many when you told me how many films you saw this week i had to like drink a glass of water uh just to swallow this pill uh lots of films and so there's a few of them we don't even have time to get to, but you yeah. wanted to give each of them just a brief shout out. One of them we're going to be talking about in detail next week. Mm -hmm. So you're going to give your early thoughts on that. Uh, but go ahead. Floor is yours. Yeah. Um. So over the past weekend, while I had some family in town, uh, I decided um, to rent a theater out or screening out to see Mank. Um, it's something I've been kind of going back and forth on, but I figured that, you know, I'm not going to have a chance to go to theaters probably for the next few months. And I figured if I was going to do something like that, might as well do it for a movie that I feel is warranted of the big screen. So I decided to see Mank uh, and support my local art house theater in that capacity. And uh, it's easily one of my favorites of the year so far. I'll talk a little bit more about why I feel that way. But um, just as far as initial reactions are concerned, um, I was worried that was going to be kind of gimmicky as far as like the black and white angle and just incorporating that style to tell a, you know, somewhat traditional biopic. But um, as far as the movie itself, I think it is really compelling. And uh, even though it is fairly nostalgic and also kind of cynical and traditionally clinical film from David Fincher, as far as the Hollywood process, the idea of, you know, pursuing your ambitions and uh, ultimately trying to forge your way into a business that is ultimately very, uh, in the end, pretty dark and businesslike. And, uh, you know, it, it's definitely a film that's very artistic in its approach, but it's also one that uh, examines the art of movie making with both uh, love and disdain. And I think it's going to inspire a very passionate and hopefully uh, positive conversation when you and Abby get the chance to see it. But as for me, I, I really did enjoy it. And I, I think right now I'm sitting on a low A minus on the film. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and I'm definitely I mean, I know, unfortunately, a lot of people are going to get a chance to see it in theaters. But um, if you have the means and you can do so safely, it's definitely 100 uh, percent one that warrants a big screen if you can. Yeah, it's it's playing locally in San Francisco. And yeah, there's there's no way for me to watch it, unfortunately, in theaters safely. So I have to bite the bullet a little bit. Uh, Abby, I know you're checking out Mink. Uh, I think you said like tomorrow. So you'll be able to. Uh, have some pretty fresh thoughts on that one. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, to watching it. I've only gotten to see little bits. I've heard some of the score, which I think was posted on the the website, and it yeah. was gorgeous. So yeah, I'm looking forward to looking forward to to more of that. We were talking a little bit earlier about how Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have just had a hell of a year, and I feel yeah. like they're yeah they've they've been putting out some pretty great scores lately. Hell of a decade, if you ask me too. But yeah, it's was uh was watching this year or is that last year? I forget. That was last this year, year and, and that's last year. Yeah, that's it true, started yeah. December and then yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's up there too. That's yeah, just great stuff. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to talking about that a little bit more and hopefully when we have a little bit more time to talk about in depth. But yeah, I have very positive things to say about that. As far as another Netflix film where I don't have a lot of positive things to say, um, I also got a chance to check out over the holiday uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which is a film that Abby covered on the show. So I won't uh, talk about it too much more, but I'll just say that unfortunately I'm, I'm not too dissimilar to where she was on the film. Ultimately, I found it to be uh, a fairly annoying and uh, ultimately very uh, trope heavy film where uh, Ron Howard, uh, I, I don't think he meant to make a fairly condescending film. I just think that his approach is just very workmanlike. And it became a fairly like TV movie s look at this impoverished family and what was meant to be a kind of uh, unflinching look at the Appalachian lifestyle. But because um, the movie is so focused on the misery of it and so much about the tragedy of this existence without actually showing a lot of the like more humane moments in between, it just becomes this sort of uh, insufferable film where I, I don't even think the performances stand out that much with the exception of uh, Glenn Close, who I don't know if she's exactly good in the film, but she is so committed to playing uh, Mima in such a like bombastic and kind of over the top way that you just kind of have to admire that type of performance. I don't know if it's going to get an Oscar nom or if the movie's going to get any awards consideration considering the negative uh, press that it's gotten so far. But um, I, I can at least understand if they do end up giving Glenn Close a nomination just because she is fully committed <laughs> to this role. But um, unfortunately, yeah, I, I have to agree with Abby in that the movie itself is just a uh, lackluster effort from nearly everyone involved. And uh, unfortunately one that, uh, uh, I wasn't uh, disappointed to miss on the big screen, <laughs> to say the least. So, yeah, I'm not going to check it out, probably. I mean, if I do, it'll I have so much other stuff to get to and I want to prioritize over this one. But I have kept up a little bit with some of the conversation around this. And like I've seen the, I guess, inevitable comments that liberal Hollywood dislikes hillbilly elegy because it's about Appalachia and like it humanizes what people are inferring as like Trump supporters. Right. And I just find that so silly and stupid because literally like one of the best films of the year, a film that uh, I myself have as, as my, my current number one is The Five Bloods, which like one of its main characters is a Trump supporter and it does so much to humanize him far more than I suspect Hillbilly Elegy does. And there's just like such a misunderstanding of like that. First of all, Hollywood is a lot more conservative than people yeah. care to like admit uh, people really like to say that the socially liberal coastal class of Los Angeles dominates our culture. But if you really peek behind the curtain, that's really not the case, especially financially, especially when it comes to the way businesses are run and Hollywood and the film industry at large. Uh, it's it's far more nuanced than that. And so I'm not here for the hillbilly elegy is bad because of my politics conversation. I'm glad we didn't have it. Yeah, I mean, if you want to see an actually compelling film about the working class and the uh, desires to make yourself in America, there's Nomadland coming out next week, which is a far better film and one that is more realistic and authentic in that exploration. Um, as far as even the source material, I haven't read the book for Hillbilly Elegy, but I know plenty of people who, uh, because I went to school pretty close to Appalachian, Ohio, were familiar with the book and they have had nothing but like disdain for its existence because it makes what they see is a fairly basically like a mockery of like what their life is like and it just looks at it at uh, a fairly uh condescending way at least the reception to the book at least but um yeah so i don't think this is ever really going to be a well uh worthwhile effort but the fact that it is uh <laughs> even worse than it probably could have been is uh 
definitely more embarrassing for everyone involved. Yeah. And I could actually jump in and recommend that if anybody wants to read about, uh, like read a memoir about the lives of, of the rural, uh, impoverished folks around the country who vote often against their interest. Uh, Sarah's Marsh's book Heartland is a much better version of that same story. Oh, yeah. That kind of, yeah. treats those, those same kind of populations with a lot more humanity. Good recommendation. Yeah. I've heard that, uh, definitely tossed around a lot. Well, you have like one more, right? One more of your, yeah. the, we're not even getting to the, some of the other films you, you, uh, you saw this week, but yeah, this um, is another big one. Yeah, well, this is just the uh, Disney Plus release. Um, so Taylor Swift is kind of in the same camp as uh, Bruce Springsteen and Beyonce in that she, in addition to being a chart-topping musician, is also exploring uh, her filmmaking background or like a way to expand her art into filmmaking. And uh, with uh, Miss America earlier this year, we got uh, what I felt was a... Um, I know you really liked that film when you saw it. Miss, Miss Americana. Sorry, Miss Americana. Right. Um, what, what was meant to be kind of like behind the curtain look at um, what her life is like, kind of like seeing beyond the glitz and glamour and just looking at who she is as a musician, artist, as well as a person. And I had kind of mixed feelings about that film altogether because it felt very PRE to me. But um, as far as this one, it's kind of a similar vein to um, the Bruce Springsteen films I've already talked about on the show and that this is just basically uh, the album itself, Folklore, that came out and was made during quarantine. And then just... Um, Taylor Swift and her collaborators just talking about like what the process of like making the songs and also like what was the meaning behind them. And uh, I would say definitely, I mean, as far as the recording of the album itself, because for the most part, these songs were the first time they were recorded in person because uh, when they were making the album, they had to do it uh, social distance throughout the album making process. But um, the uh, film itself allows you to just see the songs and see the creation of the songs themselves uh, as they are in the studio. And I think those moments are definitely worthwhile as far as the like kind of like behind the studio talking segments in between i could kind of give or take those some are kind of interesting some i didn't really care much for but uh overall i'd give it a solid b minus i think it's a worthwhile streaming exclusive and uh taylor swift directed as well and i think she did a decent job with that so that was folklore yeah it seems to fit the streaming build you know with mistress americana or miss americana being like a netflix thing this being a disney plus thing it's pretty accessible pretty easy to like jump into i really enjoyed the folklore album i thought that it was really well made and it's kind of amazing that she was able to make such a personal and elaborate album that is so counter her typical genre very mature she was able to do it you know with so many limitations with her usual team not with her in person and and having to do all of it from home during the stress of a pandemic yeah. uh, i i respect her a lot for putting that album out so i'm i'm all for her you know i don't want to say cashing in but like maybe uh keeping the folklore love going with something like this like reigniting the interest that the studio album generated when it first came out because it did kind of come and go. It was like kind of a thing for like a week. And then, yeah, not a lot of people have been talking about it since the album itself. You mean folklore? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I feel like I still see people talking about it, but yeah, I mean, I I do think this uh, documentary or this, uh, I don't know if it's technically a concert film because there's like no audience, but uh, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you have to like tweak the definition. Yeah, however you want to define it, I, I think it will generate good buzz. It seems like a lot of people who have watched it are really liking it, uh, including Taylor Swift's fans. So definitely seems like a win for her camp. All right, so we've caught up on some of Will's thoughts on those movies. We have big reviews to get to, some films that I think we, uh, we're ready, that are ripe 
for some good old-fashioned Cinemahawks discussion. But first, we have our listener voicemails. Do not want to miss those. Uh, we weren't able to play them last week because I was not here, and then I had the voicemails. So I apologize, Will and Abby, for not being able to provide those. But this is a two-week-old question, and we did get some good responses. We're going to play two of them right here. We asked you, our Cinemaholics audience, what is the best and worst Ron Howard film? And we got a nice range of responses. This was, of course, anticipating our review of Hillbilly Elegy, or rather Abby's discussion of that film. Here is what the listeners had to say. Great question. You know, if I had to pick one, I'd probably pick Frost Nixon, to be honest with you. I I, I really like that movie. I think you have to be in the right frame of mind to, to watch that, but I thought it was fantastic. And the... Um, you know, so many of these I had forgotten about. I mean, Splash, Night Shift, uh, even one, I don't know if you mentioned Gung Ho, but uh, a lot of comedies from the 80s that I had just completely forgotten about. And I'd have to go back and watch them. I, I don't even really remember too much about them. Splash a little bit, but the others, I, I just, I don't recall much about them. And I think when I think of uh, Gung Ho, I think of... Um, Mr. Mom, too, because uh, Michael Keaton was in both of them. And I, I'm not sure I'm remembering one uh, or I'm combining both of them. The one movie that I did like back in the day but uh, was Parenthood. But I do think that if I watched it again today, and I haven't watched it for a while, and if I, if I did watch it again, I just don't know that I'd have the same opinion of it. Um, it, just, it just seems like it's one of those movies that, uh, that I liked. But when I watch it again, it's um, like, ugh. I don't know about this, but I will tell you, there is one movie on there. It's more of a documentary. He did one uh, called The Beatles. I think it was eight days a week, um, but it was a documentary on The Beatles from 1961 to their, uh, till 68 or 69. Um, and it covers their, their uh, concert at Shea Stadium. And, um, and they actually, they interviewed Whoopi Goldberg, who was actually at that concert in this uh, documentary. I, this documentary is really, really well done, and I really, really enjoyed it. In fact, I watched it on a plane trip, and this is how good it is. I paused it, went up to use the restroom, came back, and a flight attendant, before I sat down, said, excuse me, I just have to know, what are you watching? And I told her, and she said, I have seen every single movie in here. She's like, I have not seen that, and that looks fantastic. So there's that. Um even without the sound, she wanted to watch it. So I, I, um, I, I think that was pretty powerful. But it is. I'd, I'd probably put that above every single one of them. But uh, I don't know if that really qualifies as a movie. It was more of a documentary that he did. But it was outstanding, in my opinion. I do have to mention this as well. Not a movie, but I do think Arrested Development was the single best thing Ron Howard ever did. I, I don't think it's – in my mind, it's not even close. Great question. Couple of things to say. Uh, so Willow, I love that movie. My dad's name is actually Willow. I wish that more people spoke about it because I just I hardly ever meet people that have even seen it, uh, which is kind of surprising uh, given who's in it and who directed it. Uh, also, I have to say that considering how nightmarish the production of Solo ended up being, uh, I was pleasantly surprised with what Ron Howard managed to salvage from that film. Uh, I know that it's very divisive and it would certainly fall at the you know, bottom half of my favorite Star Wars films, but given everything that happened, I think it was pretty good. 
And sticking on the subject of the Howards and Star Wars, I just wanted to add that Bryce Dallas Howard directed the most recent episode of The Mandalorian, and I thought it was just great. So it's nice to see that that she's certainly developed some of her uh, directing skills as a result of having a pretty darn good director of a dad. All right. Thank you for sending your voicemails. And if you want to leave a voicemail for us, uh, any of your feedback on our latest question of the week, just go to the Swell app. Uh, You can find that in our show notes. The Swell app is available on iOS and Android. And our account on there is Cinemaholics. We do prompts every week. And you can find our questions and leave your voicemail. Super easy. You just do an audio message straight from your phone device. So super, super convenient for all of our listeners who want to be heard. All right, but here is our voicemail question for next week. And we have a, we have a big movie coming out on Netflix. It's already playing in limited release. And uh, Will, you were talking about it earlier. It's Mank, the new David Fincher film about how Citizen Kane was maybe made by other people besides Orson Welles, then they don't get enough credit. So to that point, you know, David Fincher has come out with a lot of interviews about how he has sort of maybe criticized the sacred cow that is Orson Welles. And so we're kind of curious, you know, to hear from our cinemaholics, what do you think of Citizen Kane? Do you, do you really think, like, there is a mythology behind this film that it is one of, if not the greatest film of all time. And there is also a counter mythology to it's not really that great. I mean, it's just good. And it was very influential for 1941. And it paved the way for a lot of films to be far more diverse and aversive. But is Citizen Kane itself, looking back on a film that at this point is about eight, gosh, 80 years old or so, is it a masterpiece? In your opinion, do you think that it is a film that really lasts the test of time? We just want to hear your general thoughts on Citizen Kane. So let us know using the Swell app. Abby, Will, and I will give our thoughts on that uh, coinciding with our Mink review because I think that would be pretty relevant for our discussion next week. But with that, let's get into our first and probably our biggest review of the week, Happiest Season. I just woke up thinking about going home with you and got very excited about Christmas. I get to go meet the people that made my favorite person. I'll always take December away over summer. Abby, you and Harper have a perfect relationship. She is my person, and I really want everyone to know that. I want to marry her. What are you doing on your phone? I left a gentleman alone in my apartment, so I'm tracking him to make sure he leaves. You're tracking him? Yeah, I track everybody. If the NSA can do it, so can I. I'm so excited. I can't believe I'm finally going to meet everyone. There's something that we should talk about. I didn't tell my parents I'm gay. So who do they think I am? This is Harper's orphan friend, Abby. Yes, of course. They're there. You're so brave. You don't need to be. I cannot believe I've got all my daughters under one roof. So her parents believe their straight daughter brought home her lesbian friend for Christmas? Not exactly. They also think that I'm straight. Have they ever met a lesbian? We say biggest because, I mean, I think this film... We kind of knew from the outset we would be talking about it. It's coming out on Hulu. It is a romantic comedy directed by one Clea Duvall, who we, of course, have seen some great films from her. Um, I think she's probably, for me, like the film kind of um, really like that. I, like when I think of Clea Duvall, I think of her in um, But I'm a Cheerleader. That that is just a film that I adore to pieces. I, I watched it earlier this year. We've seen her in a lot of other things like uh, The Faculty and like, you know, like I remember, I just remember seeing her growing up, you know, as an actress. 
And it's really cool to see her kind of like coming into a film of her own here as director. Um, I know she's done other things like the intervent, uh, the intervention. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Um, she's done some short films, of course. But I think Happiest Seasons probably like her biggest movie. I think is probably the case. I don't know if I'm a little off about that. But this film is now on Hulu. Like I said, it has a great cast, very star-studded. Kristen Stewart, Mackenzie Davis, Allison Brie, Aubrey Plaza, and uh, Dan Levy, Mary Holland, Victor Garber, Mary Steenburgen, who we haven't seen in a while. We talked about her briefly last year in our review of Wild Rose because she uh, wrote the music for that. And uh, definitely check out that episode if you're curious about Steenburgen's career, which is very fascinating. I wish we would get into it. Uh, the screenplay is from Duval and Mary Holland. And what separates this Christmas romantic comedy from many other ones, especially like studio comedies, is that its central couple is a lesbian couple. And, you know, over the last decade, I'd say that we definitely have seen an increase in lesbian and gay romantic comedies coming out, of course. But we, we don't usually get them where the main characters are in that community and it's like it's a big film. It's, it's got a huge cast you know, not that that makes it better, of course, but it is pretty heartening to see in my opinion it is, it is something that shows that like, okay, finally we're getting some like new stories and like different stories in this sort of build. So I do appreciate that. Um, I want to turn it to you, Abby old Chessie. What is the premise of happiest season is, is all well in this December romantic comedy? Well, ultimately everything ends up well, but uh, yeah, the uh, the central couple in this movie are uh, Abby, who's played by Kristen Stewart. No, no relation. Um, yeah. And <laughs> and Harper, uh, who's played by Mackenzie Davis. They are um, they're a couple. They've been together for for a good while. Abby is considering uh, proposing to Harper. She'd like to make it official. Um, and she she still hasn't met Harper's family. So Harper suggests that they go home to meet her family over Christmas. And Abby thinks that she might um, she might propose to Harper during the holiday, like she's going to talk to her dad and get permission and then they'll they'll do the thing. Um, but finds out on the way there that Harper has not told her parents that she is gay, is not, in fact, out of the closet. Um, and so by going there, Abby's going to have to pretend to be Harper's orphaned uh, roommate who just tagged along for the holiday and is going to have to basically hide herself away in a different part of the house. Um, so that obviously causes some, some fear and some friction. Uh, Abby's concerned as to whether Harper actually cares for her that much. If she isn't willing to come out about their relationship to her family. Um, she also, uh, things are also complicated by, um, Harper's ex, uh, played by Aubrey Plaza, who, who shows up and there's some, some kind of complications based on, the early days of that, that relationship, uh, and also Harper's relationship with her, uh, her super competitive sister, uh, Sloan played by Alison Brie and her odd duck sister, um, Jane played by Mary Holland, who's actually my favorite part of the whole movie. Um, and, um, her, also her parents, her dad, uh, Victor Garber is running for, uh, mayoral office and her mom is, Mary Steenburgen, and she's obsessed with keeping up appearances. So it's it's a pretty tense situation that Abby comes into, and it's only made more complicated by the people who are involved in that situation. Um, fortunately, she has her best friend, uh, Dan Levy, um, whose character is My John. My favorite character in this um, movie. <laughs> yeah, he was great, um, who kind of provides emotional support and um, kind of helped her 
figure out things along the way. Yeah, I I definitely am feeling like this movie doesn't work without Dan Levy and without uh, Mary Holland, who at any time they were on screen, I was like, yes, this is a comedy, isn't it? Um, very, very strong performances there. I have to say Alison Brie, in my opinion, is I love Alison Brie. We know it. Everybody knows it. Will knows it more than anyone. Uh, this didn't work for me for that that whole thing um honestly like just just the way that character is written she's just like a monster and it's like not fun but uh i don't i don't know if you had a thought on that abby yeah i would agree i think she's a little intense um honestly i don't i don't trust most movie characters named sloan they usually tend to be pretty sharp yeah. and hard um <laughs> and tv characters yeah that's fair um so yeah i wasn't crazy about that character either i i thought the arc with her character was interesting but I, I feel like some of the things that she did were not terribly defensible, even given what yeah. she was going through. Yeah. She's kind of like the impetus for some of the, like this is a weird film in the sense, like they, there are parts of it that are very like applaudable, but then there are certain things where you're like, that's pretty messed up, which, Hey, look, welcome to the Christmas romantic comedy game. Like that's kind of how it goes sometimes. Um, Will Ashton, this is a film that takes place in Pittsburgh. I believe it was shot around Pittsburgh. Yes, it was. Um, I think, well, I do think, though, because they drive to her parents, I don't think most of the movie takes place in Pittsburgh canonically, but I pictured it as like they're in Ohio or something. This is a very Wasp family, but they, I don't think they even say exactly where the parents and all yeah. them live. That said, Will Ashton, because it takes place in Pittsburgh, I'm assuming that means your grade is you get you have this an extra letter grade bump, right? I wish. Um, so, yeah, I, I was... Um... Not, I don't have like super high expectations for the film, but I had modestly high expectations because, like you said, it's shot in Pittsburgh. It's uh, Clea Duvall, who um, I did see the intervention, her previous film. And I, I forget if you had a chance to see it, John, but if you no. haven't, uh, I definitely recommend it to you because it's very big chill S, but it does it in a monetized fashion where it's not just kind of like simply redoing that. But it has a very similar format. It's very much an ensemble piece like this film. And uh, I definitely liked it. She's in the film as well. And uh, I, I I felt it was a very strong and confident debut. And I was excited to see this film, especially because it's a bigger film. And, you know, it's a studio comedy that's from a perspective we don't often see. But in the end, I found myself fairly disappointed. <laughs> uh, this actually might be one of the bigger disappointments I had this year, just because we haven't had too many films actually come out. Um, just mainly because I guess in the scheme of things, like I think it means well. I think it obviously has a big heart. I think the cast is committed to it, but there's just something about the whole thing that feels weirdly very conventional to me in a way that like it feels almost afraid to kind of push beyond what it wants to do. And I feel like by kind of almost settling it at certain points, it, it does undermine itself. And it doesn't quite reach its potential in a way that that makes it a somewhat uh, ho-hum experience throughout. And I think part of it has to do with the writing, which I think is very hit and miss the comedy department. Like you said, I think the performances definitely help stand it out. The standouts for me are obviously, like you said, Dan Levy, Mary Holland, who co-wrote the film with Clea Duvall and um, Mary Steinberg. And I believe they were the performances that kind of helped love it out and kind of boost up the comedy. And I do think that Kristen Stewart, like I, I appreciate she's approaching this character from a hu more humane perspective, kind of trying to find the humanity that can be found throughout. And I do think she has strong uh, chemistry with Aubrey Plaza, which is something that's been pointed out throughout Twitter. Um, and I think kind of undermines the central relationship in some ways. But um, as far as the movie itself, I just, I think for one, it, it's kind of underbaked. And at the same time, it's kind of overstuffed because we have 
so many family characters that don't really get time to shine. I think the big one you mentioned was Allison Bree's character, who kind of felt like an accessory character and didn't really get her chance to flourish here, especially for with a uh, strong actress like her in the role. And, um, you know, I, I still didn't really fully get a sense of uh, Victor Garber's character. I feel like he should have been much more present throughout the film. And it just kind of seems like he's kind of thrown to the side a lot in a way that undermined the big uh, emotional catharsis of his character at the end. But if you're just looking at this as kind of a traditional uh, family comedy uh, that's told from the LGBT perspective, I, I don't think it's terrible. I think I think the fact that it is a Hulu film does make it very accessible and I think very sweet. And definitely right now with this year being so grim and depressing, it is nice to just see a fully nice film that wants to do well and, and means well. And uh, obviously I think this is a personal project for Cleo Duvall. I remember hearing as such uh, from some interviews from her, but in the end, I just kind of found myself shrugging my shoulders and wishing this was better than what it was. Well, first of all, Valashin, Bah Humbug, um, which I know I'm not using that correctly, I, I say, Will, you know, it's okay. You're not in the Christmas spirit yet. It's We're still technically recording this in November. I'm sure by December 1st, your your thoughts will change on I the mean, movie completely. I liked, uh, what was it called, Jingle Jangle more than you. <laughs> and that was like two weeks wow. ago, but but fine. Yeah, sure. My God. Um, yeah, I, I'd really have to... It's not that I disagree with a lot of your criticisms. I also thought Victor Garber is really underutilized here. I, I just feel like he's not in the movie much... There, there's sort of like a, a a tell don't show approach to this family being very like because the main hook of the film is that you really have to prove out why Harper Mackenzie Davis's character is so scared of coming out to her family and like you get a you do get like a small sense of it there's like competition between the sisters and everything but the dad is such a blank slate like I never I never bought into the fear of like them you know admitting to their family like their little secrets right and i shouldn't say little secrets but they're pretty big secrets and at the same time the dynamic is still pretty well written i, I think that like the sister's dynamic is really fascinating to me especially with the mary holland character who just i can't say enough good things about um so yeah even though i think the garber character is a bit of a blank slate i i have to disagree and say that i think chris and stewart she has chemistry with everyone. She doesn't just have chemistry with Aubrey Plaza. And I think this film is a little bit of a Rorschach mm-hmm. test of your opinions of these relationships. I think that if you watch this film and there is a certain pivotal moment between Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis in front of a gas station, and if you don't buy into that, I think that's what maybe will paint the film for you because look, all I'm saying is if Mackenzie Davis, I don't care what she has done to wrong me, I would forgive her for anything, honestly. I think that moment that you're talking about works. I just think throughout it doesn't quite they, their chemistry isn't really found throughout, and it feels like they're kind of forcing it into the film. I can't. Is, I disagree. I, I didn't really feel that as much until we introduced Aubrey Plaza's character. No, yeah, no, I was right. Yeah, Aubrey Plaza's character, and when she comes in, she has her moment with Kristen Stewart. It's just like, oh wow, like okay, so clearly there's more of a spark here that feels a lot more genuine and sincere. I think there's a spark, but I don't think it's more genuine. I think it's just different. And I think it just, that it's, it feels more natural Kristen Stewart, in the film. It's it. I think both feels natural. And I think what's great about the Aubrey Plaza character is like, it's a different kind of chemistry and it shows the diversity and the variety of different relationships without having to undermine one. Abby, we, we, you got to break us up. Cause I think we're about to get to fisticuffs. Right. I can, yeah, I can tell things are getting kind of intense. I, unfortunately, I agree a little bit more with Will. Um, I, I don't dislike Happiest Season. I feel like there is aesthetically kind of a weird 
it, it seems odd to me that this was going to get a studio release because so much of it feels like a weird cable movie kind of vibe. Um, like the music, the kind of weird, bad Christmas pop songs that you would never hear anywhere else, um, but sound like songs that you should have heard a million times. Um, the weird montage of illustrations at the beginning that don't look great. They felt like kind of weird, cheesy Photoshopped images. Um, like I get why that's there. Um, I get that it's kind of giving you the vibe of it being like a happy, feel good rom-com with a, with an LGBTQ perspective. And that's very welcome. I think, you know, everybody deserves to have a cheesy Hallmark romance. Um, but also I feel like it would not have taken very much for this to be more than it is. And so the fact that it's not feels a little disappointing. Um, I, yeah, mostly I, I really like Mary Holland's character's arc. I feel like that's very well realized. Um, I do feel like as much as they talk about their family being extremely competitive and very exacting, I feel like you don't get that, especially a lot from, from Victor Garber, who appears to be the person that they're trying to please the most. So John, I would, I would agree with you that that, that relationship feels a little underdeveloped. Um, and I, I think Kristen Stewart has good chemistry with, I think, both Mackenzie Davis and Aubrey Plaza. Um, but I, I, I kind of take a little bit of extra convincing when it comes to Kristen Stewart performances. I, I feel like she works really well in certain situations. And in other ones, I just am not getting the energy that I need from her. And I feel like that happens to me here more often than not. There was a moment where, you know, one of the characters says like, oh, yeah, Abby's one of the good ones. And I was like, yeah, I guess like she's nice. Like, I don't know. I never felt like she was a character who was like she's it's not that she's not a catch, I guess. It was just like there wasn't that much personality. Um, she's she reacts a lot in this film and it's not bad acting. It's just sort of like she's the straight man uh, archetype. And she I don't know. Stuart doesn't get a chance to really flex. Right. What? <laughs> straight man. Yeah. I, yeah. You said no yeah. pun intended. I said, yeah. <laughs> That's why I added the archetype in there, right? It's like, yeah. you know. No, yeah, I, I I get that. I think that that makes a lot more sense. Um I yeah, I she she does react a little bit more than than getting to kind of instigate the action here. I do think that her uh relationship with Dan Levy's character John is very sweet and yeah, I like John's arc crucial. as well. Um mm-hmm. yeah, he's he's got his own thing going on and the the running jokes that the movie has about him are very good. Um, the kind of relationship that he sort of develops uh, friendship wise with with Mary Holland at the end of the film, oh, I think, is delightful. Their spinoff um, better be in the works because I know. God, oh, that would be. Absolutely I feel perfect. like the by the end of the film, the movie kind of finally comes around to being like the story that you want it to be, where like everybody is supportive and like there are happy, diverse relationships. But like mainly it's just about people underestimating how good a writer Mary Holland is. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I did like I did like everything that develops with those characters. I just I think the ending is way too like nice. Like it's like okay. That's I mean, fair. I, too nice I agree or that too like saccharine. Too saccharine. Okay. It's just sort of like I don't know. There's no real consequences for things, and it's it, it does wrap up in the typical Hallmark way. But I wish there could be at least a little bit of like. I don't know, suffering and pain. Maybe I'm just yeah, mood. Or, or conflict. I think that there there's a lot more opportunity here for edge than is given. And I, I kind of get why that's not the route that the movie decides to take. But also there's, yeah, the, uh, the, the part of me that, that, uh, prefers, prefers quality over, I don't know, everything else. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not disappointed necessarily because I like these characters so much that I want the happy ending. Yes, I guess I'm just yeah. a little, I feel a little weird about it, I guess. I Yeah, I completely understand what you're saying. 
it's just a neat ending, I guess. Like it, it ties things up a little too neatly for you, I guess. Right. Yeah. So, okay. I think we can get into our final thoughts. I mean, it, it sounds like we don't agree or it's not that we disagree a lot. I think it's just like we're forming our conclusions differently on the same evidence, I guess. Like, I think the only main disagreement I think I have with Will is the chemistry thing. But yeah, in terms of like the character dynamics and the character dynamics and the writing and like how things kind of turn out, I guess I just walked away from this liking all of the good a lot more than I was disappointed by the middling. And I don't think there's much in this that's bad. So I was really charmed by this thing. And I think like any Christmas movie that makes me laugh and makes me feel happy, I I give it a, a, a big old thumbs up. So I'm a B on happiest season i definitely recommend it i I hope people give it a shot and uh, i have a feeling a lot of people are going to be watching this for years to come it's going to be like a christmas thing that people are going to enjoy but uh, what about you abby what is your what is your grade for happiest season um i think i'm a high b minus on this um kind of just just below a b uh i i agree with you john i think a lot of people are gonna see this and see themselves in it and really enjoy it because of that um but also i yeah the uh the aesthetic of it just is not not what I love in in Christmas movies or, or rom-coms. So it just on a personal level kind of disappointed me a bit. Will Ashton, tell us all about your C minus. Uh, not quite that low, but I guess compared to you two, I am the uh, the Grinch in the scenario. But um, yeah, I mean, I was between a low B minus and a high C plus. And I guess just the more I think back on, the more I just find myself kind of underwhelmed by this experience, just maybe because I had the expectations going into it or I, I was a little bit more hopeful about what this could be or maybe a little bit more hopeful about it being something more than it was. And uh, I think, like you said, I think it's going to have a, uh, a pretty accessible audience. Like I think it's going to appeal to a lot of people. It's very sweet. It means well. And I think uh, as a studio film, it's fairly harmless and sincere. And so. I don't think it's like a terrible, awful film or anything. I just found it to be an ultimately fairly mediocre film as far as uh, being decent enough, but just never quite excelling in what it was trying to do. So um, the only thing I would mention otherwise, I'm kind of surprised, even though a lot of people have pointed out already that none of us mentioned the uh, pretty easy comparisons to get out throughout this film uh, in a way that's like almost trying to like be the get out of a like Christmas, like Hallmark kind of film. I think someone called it Head Out at one point so um that was just kind of a weird thing i wasn't expecting going into this but uh i don't know if you had that experience as well i didn't until afterwards but um for me yeah it's, it's a kind of uh middle to high c plus i i think that reading of this is like the, the lesbian get out it's a choice of a reading i'll give it that but okay that is happiest season it is now streaming on hulu This week's episode of Cinemaholics is brought to you by What the Phalange, a queer feminist friends podcast. Now, you may have heard of the TV show, the NBC sitcom to end all NBC sitcoms in the early 2000s, Friends, which was F-R-I-E-N-D-S as it was uh, perioded or however you say that. That show was very influential and it could use a fresh take, could use a couple of people who have something interesting, nuanced, and intelligent to say about how Friends holds up all these years later. And that's what Emily and Quinn are here to do with their show, What the Phalange. Now, to help me understand a little bit better on the comedy scene, because I'm just one person, I've never been a comedian, we thought, you know what? Friends takes place 
in New York City. It has comedians in the cast, I believe. So we should have somebody on who understands the New York sitcom world better than any of us. And that's why we have John Mulaney on the show here. John Mulaney, welcome to, uh, welcome back to Cinemaholics. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this ad with us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real honor every time I get to visit Cinemaholics, which is more often than you might assume, but it's always a pleasure. Now, John Mulaney, I, I know that when it comes to podcasts, you love friends and you love podcasts. So this seems like the perfect kind of show for you, is it not? Oh, it absolutely is. I remember being a fan of Friends as a very young man. And the thing that's very appealing about the show Friends is that everyone can relate to it because everyone has friends. And so that's a little (laughs) hook right off the bat to reel viewers in. And this podcast lives up to that promise. You're so funny, John Mulaney. And it kind of reminds me of What the Phalange, which is also a funny show. Because what's fun about this show is they do have a retrospective on the fashion, the weird relationships, and some of the ridiculously problematic jokes, but they do it in a really fun way. And I feel like I'm five episodes in. I feel like I'm learning something this this show from this show, Friends, and the podcast about Friends, What the Phalange. John Mulaney, how would you say this podcast compares to, well, your sitcom that you did in the 20-teens? I'm sure everybody remembers. Oh, I'm sure. I, I don't know what sources you're listening to because I think only I remember that show, but I think Friends uh, far surpasses that, if I do say so myself. And my favorite part about listening to What the Phalange is that they do it one episode at a time. They don't review the whole TV show at one time because that's not how you watch it. You have to watch them one episode at a time, and this podcast reviews them one at a time. So it's a time release kind of thing that makes it really easy to digest. You know what I'm saying? I think you've broken it down perfectly. So you're going to find not just episodes with like, they don't just say like the title of the episode, they put their fun twist on it. So one episode, for example, is the one where we don't get 90s dating etiquette (laughs) and the one with intergenerational trauma. My favorite one, the one where friends did one thing thing right. This is the one. (laughs) Yes. I love it. You can find What the Phalange, a queer feminist friends podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so many other podcast apps I'm sure you love. And with this show, I think you're going to have a good time like we have been. And uh, as you deconstruct and diversify one of the most influential sitcoms of all time, wouldn't you say, John? Oh, yes, I think you're absolutely right. But don't take our word for it. Go give it a whirl yourself. It won't take that long, I promise. Our next film is one that I have not seen, but Abby and Will have. So they're going to talk about Lovers Rock. This is the latest in the Small Axe film miniseries. Now, you both talked about Mangrove last week. I haven't seen Mangrove or Lover's Rock or any of the small axe features that you can watch. I think there's like one more that you can watch as far as I understand. Red, white, and blue, I think. Uh, but that said, this uh, new that's one is... It's next week, okay. Uh, that said, this one yeah. was supposed to uh, premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. Of course, the festival was canceled and it wasn't part of the uh, like later programming. But then it did premiere at the New York Film Festival. So there have been some notices just this past fall uh, I was. I believe people were able to watch it virtually for that festival, along with uh, Red, White, and Blue and Mangroves. So, Lovers Rock. Uh, Will Ashton, what did, what did you think of this one? And what, what's it about? I don't know anything about it. 
Uh, yeah, so this is the, like you said, second installment in the Small Axe series, now available on Amazon Prime, or at least these first two installments. Oh, yeah, and directed and written by Stephen Queen. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, I, oh, co-written, I believe, for both of these uh, these first two films. But yeah, both Yeah, he co-wrote by, it with uh, Korsha Newland, right? I believe so, yeah. This one he did. I, I forget who he wrote uh, Mangrove with. But um, yeah, so this one, uh, it's... Definitely compared to uh, Mangrove, which is about like 130 minutes or so. This one is a lot more contained, a little, uh, quite a bit shorter at like, I believe, 70 minutes straight. Um, 68 minutes. Is it yeah. only 68? I thought it was 70 yeah. on Amazon. But yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, where the first one is like a legit like feature length film. This is like just barely over a feature um, or feature length, I guess. And uh, the focus of it takes place in the early 1980s, if not 1980 itself. Uh, we follow it from West London, and we see primarily the burgeoning relationship between a woman named Martha, played by Amira Jane St. Uh, Aubin, and then a uh, fellow jazz music enthusiast who, I, I forget the actor's name, I don't have it in front of me, but um, they're attending this like night gathering, and like they're kind of in a uh, white-dominated part of town, and it's just focuses primarily... Not so much on the struggles they're dealing with compared to like the first installment where it was just the like oppression and the ongoing difficulties that were found throughout, but kind of more just an elation, sort of celebration of life and this uh, avenue through which they can uh, kind of celebrate their individuality and and uh, kind of find a relax from the troubles that uh, pursue throughout life. However, there is this kind of like burgeoning intensity throughout and in that like there is always this threat of danger we see some threats of danger throughout the film and the sense of like even though there's like a party going on literally in this case and like there is like this uh escapism there is also these ongoing sense of unnerve and this like sense that like things aren't always quite as good as they could be and uh it makes for a pretty uh i would say pretty uh well-proven example of uh stephen mcqueen's great talents as a filmmaker yeah, I would I would tend to agree with most of it. Uh, I I think it's interesting because Mangrove, being such a like a full length film and like a three act structure film, um, kind of sets a different expectation for what we get with Lovers Rock, and I think that kind of sets an interesting precedent for like what we can expect for the rest of uh, of Small Acts. I think it's it's probably just going to be a really interesting space where uh, Steve McQueen can kind of experiment with these various forms of uh, black British stories that he's wanting to tell, which is cool. I think that's, that's great that he has like the room to play with that. Um, I, I feel like this is one that for me doesn't really stand on its own as a film so much as it does stand uh, in interesting context with the rest of the series um, just because it is, it, it's shorter and also because it is uh, so much more kind of interested in an uh, in, in experience, basically, in recreating an experience and recreating a place and not so much recreating or like not so much giving us a, a narrative through line. Um, basically, what we do in this movie is that we spend 70 minutes at a party. <laughs> that's that's it. Um, I think uh, Martha and Franklin's relationship kind of coming through it is sort of the thing that we're kind of anchored to, but we don't really get it consistently throughout. Um, the movie kind of goes through a lot of different threads and a lot of different people's experiences uh, to where I, I feel like I would have enjoyed this more if it were a little bit more in a traditional like film 
storytelling vein. Um, like there are obviously there, there are loads of movies that have been set at house parties that managed to have that, that same kind of interesting arc and through line. And that's something that I, I would have liked to have seen here. Um, but also I, I definitely get the, uh, the value of the experience that he's creating because it really feels like you are there. Um, kind of seeing the way that people set up for the party, the way that people cook for the party, um, kind of the dynamics of how it works within that, that's that, that setting and, uh, like the characters that you meet and the, the interests that they have. There are, uh, two scenes that go on for a really long time where characters are just dancing and reacting to music. And, um, you get, you get a really strong sense of like how they're feeling in that moment, which is great. I feel like both of those scenes go on for longer than they need to, but, um, I, I like the idea that's present in both of those moments. Yeah, I mean, I don't really disagree with anything you say, Oliver. I I think I just appreciate more what this movie is doing and what it's able to accomplish with that. In that, I I think because with uh, Mangrove, my ultimate complaint with it is that it felt fairly conventional for Steve McQueen as far as like the uh, storytelling of it and what he was able to capture. I think with this film, I was a little bit more taken by it because it felt like he was experimenting more and, and kind of pushing himself and allowing himself to make kind of a more impressionistic type film where he could kind of be, you know, openly very musical and, and allow the like kind of free flowing narrative to uh, echo the music and just the feeling of the moment and just capturing that sense, like you said, of time and uh, feeling like what you're there with them and, and enjoying it and stuff. And my only real complaint would be just I would like to know more about the characters. Like, I feel like we kind of just get an impression of them and we kind of see just the, a brief moment in their lives, which I know is obviously intentional. And I think that's you know key to it. But at the same time, I, I would like to know a little bit more about them, kind of see more of their relationship flourish. But uh, as a little time capsule film where we just kind of get an impression of uh, these people's lives and just like a kind of like little hour into their uh, existence, I, I, I think it really does work quite well. All right. I guess it's time for final grades. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, I got nothing to say. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, you haven't seen Mangrove, right? You haven't seen Mangrove Ivor? No. no. Yeah, I'm very curious to hear where you stand on these, uh, John, because I know like some people are definitely uh, more taken by Mangrove over Lover's Rock and uh, vice versa. And it seems like however you feel about both these films are going to maybe uh, influence how you feel about the next three. But for me, I think I'm pretty uh, solid A minus on this one. Man, what an episode for Will Ashton. Uh, what about you, Abby? I think I would go a little bit lower. Um, I I think I'm a high B plus on this. I think it's it's a really interesting experimentation, and I think it's a it's an effective one. I think it works as an episode of a miniseries. I don't think it stands out really as a solo film as much as Mangrove does. And so I I think as a whole, I think I'm going to be pretty high on on Small Axe as an individual episode within it. I am kind of a little bit above middling thoughts on it, but I still appreciate what it's trying to do. I don't know, Abby. I heard you say something about solo films and I, we got to save the solo a star Wars story conversation for another day. I know you're anxious to get to it. Oh buddy. Do I have thoughts, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, not, not the week for it, but okay. That's lovers rock. It's, you can now watch it on Amazon prime video. And like Will said, the last small axe is next week, red, white, and blue. I believe John Boyega is in that, so Not hopefully the last one. Uh, I'll be able to join in on the fun. There's five altogether. This is only the second. There's five? Uh, I thought there was three. Excuse me. Uh, well, but there's okay. three that's been released through film festivals, but five altogether. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. 
All right, let's get into our next film, which is one that I have been very anxious to talk about. Uh, I have been just, you know, ever since I've watched this film, or even like when I saw the poster, I knew our conversation on it would be something else, because we're finally going to talk about Matthew Rankin's directorial debut, The 20th Century. Yay! This is a Canadian thing. Um, I don't even know if we should call it a comedy or a drama or... Satire. I don't know. I feel like those words don't really cover it. I think satire, satire? fits. Yeah. It's like a yeah. satire of the world, though. It's like, is, is it a satire of like one specific thing? I'm not sure. Well, yeah. Is I mean, it a satire it's... of indie films? Um, No, I mean, more kind of Germanist, Impressionistic art, I guess, with like kind of like early 20th century, like propaganda films and like different things in that sort of vein. Yeah, I think there's there's a satire of Canadian culture in there too. But oh, for yeah, sure, yeah, it's it's a little bit of everything. Yeah. I like that. I mean, yeah. yeah. I'll try my best to describe this film. It is very it's just very bizarre. Good luck. I mean, we just have to say at the <laughs> outset. Uh this premiered last year at TIFF and I remember when it came out people were like buckle up. Um it's very strange. Uh but the film stars um oh gosh, I I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his name correctly, but Dan Byrne or Byron, Byrne? I'm not sure how to say it. Uh, he plays a character named William Lyon Mackenzie King, a young man in 1899. That's right, we're on the onset of the 20th century. And he wants to become the next Canadian prime minister. This is obviously a fiction. I don't believe this person ever existed. <laughs> I Well, I have to admit, I didn't look it up. He, he did, actually. That William Lyon really? Mackenzie King was an actual Canadian prime minister. Wow. The, uh, I, I believe the actual history of the character is very different, although he did have a very close relationship with his mom. I'm pretty sure that's where the similarities end. That yeah. has like a new level to this film then, because, yeah, I just sort of like walked away from it thinking this thing was like totally made up. But uh, I mean, I guess it is still, but. Okay, interesting. I mean, I, I would look at kind of like the same way that like Lynn Manuel Miranda was co- taking like Alexander Hamilton's life story and just kind of did his own thing with it while okay. still somewhat following the facts. This one's obviously a lot more liberal with like being artistically different, but like kind of the Is same it idea. Now? <laughs> I mean, I think I think he like picked up a book of like his life story and I was just like, huh, you know, I, I could maybe do something with this. And then he just kind of ran wild with it. So that's what I was told, at least. Yeah. And in terms of the comedy, this thing is it's kind of like a weird mashup of different uh, satires. I'd say that there's a lot of Monty Python in here. Oh, Uh, yeah. There's. Yeah. Yeah. You can really tell like between like there's some scenes in here that are straight out of like the Python playbook of let's make a sketch and sort of like weave it into the plot. So you're going to see a lot of Holy Grail and Life of Brian in that sense, uh, some flying circus in there. And the plot as it is, like I just kind of mentioned that he's trying to become prime minister. There are a lot of like uh, a lot of obstacles to that path. I, we know like from the beginning of the film that we're in this like kind of different sort of realm. Like this isn't a very visually straightforward film. The sets and the cinematography are all very heightened. It's, it's very highly realized when people walk around. It's sort of like in the, uh, Superman 2, you know, Fortress of Solitude, right? Like everything is kind of like pastel settings. Like think of like the, almost like the claymation from Elf or any anything to that nature. You you really feel like people are on these like play sets instead of like movie sets. 
And it's all to sort of help like take you into the film and kind of suck you into its like off kilter comedy. And to that effect, I think it really works because this is a blisteringly hilarious film. I I've thought every single scene had at least one really strong laugh in it. And some of the best moments in here are like early on in the film when we're just getting to know Mackenzie King's like little like side set of characters, just like this young little orphan girl who feels like a character ripped out of a uh, Mark Twain novel. Uh, we have his mother, of course, who is played to such an incredible effect by, um, I think, um, oh, who who is the actor who plays Mother Lewis Nguyen, I think it is. I knew it was Lewis something, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, we also have, um, as his father, um, <laughs> Oh gosh, uh, I'm trying to. Sorry, it's been a while since I saw it, and I'm actually forgetting who plays his father. I think it's Richard Jutris, but uh, hopefully, hopefully, I'm I'm remembering that correctly. But yeah, I, the the cast here is so strong. Um, we we have this uh, character named Ruby, played by Catherine Saint Laurent, who is like a character who kind of like shows up, and you don't think that she's going to be like as big of a deal as she is. But there's like a lot of like mythology in this film around like a prophecy of like Mackenzie King becoming the prime minister and marrying a certain person. But then we watch him go on this like bizarre, almost like Olympiad competition of like a political satire of like what makes somebody, you know, worthy of becoming the president. And it's like these sort of like amateur sports and it's, it's so funny. And it, it does kind of like ring into like the Canadian history aspect. Uh, some of like the zanier things that are part of like real Canadian history and the relationship with uh the united kingdom and and so forth so it it's i think this film is just brilliant and brilliantly weird i couldn't get enough of it but all right abby old chessy but what did you think of the 20th century yeah this movie's bananas and i loved every second of it um yeah there there are so many lines in this that i just want to memorize so i can like whip them out at will like i told you that won't happen again i have a bird now is like perfect um so yeah there's a lot in here that i love uh the the vibe of it very much feels to me like an extended Monty Python sketch, uh, like the the jokes and the style of it and the heightened nature of it, where um, I feel like there are elements of it that you are supposed to recognize as like these are actual people or like the names are from actual people, but literally nothing else is true, uh, which feels very, very accurate to a lot of Monty Python sketches where they're making fun of like British national uh, identity. Um, I feel like there's a same, a similar attitude here to Canadian national identity, like uh, referring to their um, their existing flag as uh, the disappointment. I think is a a pretty good running joke. Um, and uh, like having having uh, seal clubbing, baby seal clubbing, be a uh, be a part of what you need to do in order to yeah. uh, to become a viable prime minister candidate, and all of the seals and not are, only that, but it's like you find out that there's a there's another meaning behind clubbing the seals that is even more important oh yeah 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 there's there's all kinds of stuff like that um and everyone uh, saw the, it i clubbed the seals the best every <laughs> yeah and like peeing in this writing your name in the, in the snow with your pee and like how the the font is supposed to be like you know okay the that one was the real. best font that, that was that amazing. was actually yeah that's part of history they were just they had to put in some things that were yeah. straight laced my god man um so yeah, there's a lot in that that I'm going to remember for a really long time. Uh, it's really visually distinctive. Uh, I was talking to John earlier this week that I I realized about midway through that a lot of it is uh, appears to be inspired by uh, Paul Schrader's film uh, Mishima: A Life in Four Chapters, yeah. which is a choice. Um, and like, I, think I mean, totally that's a great movie. On, 
but yeah. it's it's yeah it's not what you would expect so there's there's a lot of uh ambition and a really strange sense of humor throughout that i i very much appreciated i i kind of slept on this one when it was at tiff i heard good things but wasn't sure how into a movie about canadian history i would be at the time uh and now that i know it has little to nothing to do with canadian history um i i appreciate what it is trying to do I'll say real quick before we get to Will's panning of the film that I wish Nathan Fielder had been in this. I don't know why, but I feel like he would have fit in like a glove. But that would have been a really cool like cameo spot. I could see him yeah. just kind of being inserted in there as like an ancillary character. Um, yeah. I, I do. Um, yeah. Uh, Sean Collin is in this, though. And so yes. that was that was a name that I recognized. From. Lord Mewtwo. Yeah. Uh, as soon as he shows up, I was. Uh, oh, hey, somebody uh, yeah. more recognized. But yeah. Yeah. Back from my, my days when I watched a lot of Comedy Central on uh, on basic cable. Will Ashton just watched this film right before we started recording. So Abby and I don't know what he thinks, but my guess is that. OK, yeah, Abby and I really like the film. Will, tell us why why you hate it. I don't know why you think I hate things as much as I do. Um, no, I was quite taken by it. Um, the way I heard it described elsewhere from a, actually a fellow colleague of mine from Movie Boozer, Ken, is that it's basically like a Fritz Lang movie. If Fritz Lang were directing a sketch of uh, Kids in the Hall, the Comedy Central show from the 90s. And uh, I think that's probably the best way I could describe this experience, if you can describe it in one particular way. Uh, because, you know, I mean, to echo a lot of what you two were saying already, I mean, Visually and uh, aesthetically, I think this film is pretty impeccable, especially from a first time director or at least a first time feature director. Um, the fact they're able to communicate as much as they are uh, and, and get away with so much. It is kind of a small miracle of film in that sense. Like the fact this even exists and is as it is, uh, is pretty incredible. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, one of those films where I, I feel like so much uh, so many times on the show I've been like I wish this was weirder or like I wish this was more willing to be absurd and stuff and uh, that's definitely not a grievance I have with this film <laughs> because <laughs> um, this movie fully indulges its weird side and, and fully is just like committed to doing every weird and outlandish thing it can basically think to do uh, a lot of it having to deal with some sophomoric uh, male humor uh, which I definitely appreciate and I, I definitely think the movie is so willing to do that that i i think it kind of sacrifices some of its uh narrative coherency but at the same time um i i think that sense of just like free flowing uh in more ways than one just like absurdism and just like doing everything that it wants to do is uh pretty incredible and i i, I think it, it doesn't make for like the like strongest like narrative like i said or the most concrete uh story but i i think the fact that it is consistently weird and outlandish as it is uh, and and fully willing to be fairly bizarre and bespoke is uh, just a credit to this first time filmmaker and, and the fact that he's able to round up all these people who are willing to bring that vision alive. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always excited to see films as willing to be this weird and outlandish, especially right off the bat. So uh, in that sense, it is in a pretty incredible achievement. I honestly think like we could make a whole game or a whole episode of Cinemaholics just trying to describe this movie using only random pop culture references. It's like taking random things. It's like, okay, yeah. It's like if, uh, well, I guess, I don't know if you've ever watched uh, Valium Village, which is kind of a deep cut. It's like, it, it was a thing on Vine where these people would like edit together these like videos where they're for people learning how to speak English, but they were made in like the 80s and 90s. 
And it's kind of like we were talking about with like kids in the hall. It's like got this very like dry, like it's funny because the characters in it don't realize how absurd it is kind of humor to it. Um, so it's stuff like that, that like always tickles me and a whole movie of it. It's like, like you said, the fact that it's, it's 90 minutes, but that to me, it felt long just because I felt like I was just getting more and more good stuff. And I was like, I don't deserve this. I, you know, I, I'm getting such a treat here and I, I'm very thankful for that. Uh, Matthew Rankin, you know, like, like we've mentioned, um, first film, he's done some short films and everything. And I think it's so fascinating to me that this is his first, like, you get one shot possibly to make a film and it says so much about a person about this person that he was like, you know what? I'm going for broke. I'm going to make something that is just endlessly memorable and uh, thankfully quotable. So I'm, I'm very happy to see that with this. Yeah. I mean, there's that logic, I, I guess, where like people are like, make every film like it might be your last film. And he's like, yeah, oh, buddy, I will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It's like this is clearly the film he wanted to make. No compromises. And the fact that people bankrolled it says, I think, uh, something kind of optimistic about the filmmaking industry. So, uh, Abby, do you have anything to add before we we get into our final grades here? I, I don't even want to talk about the story. I just want people to enjoy this film as fresh as they can. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to describe in terms of plot. I think it's it's mostly just yeah, you can you can describe like a bunch of things and say if you like these things, you will like this movie and I can pretty much just guarantee that yeah, it's very much on my wavelength and that wavelength is is pretty special. So, I mean, not just cuz it's mine, but cuz I know it's weird. So, I appreciate that. Yeah, I I got one more weird reference. I'm going to call this Hipster Hamilton. No? Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll cross that mm-hmm. off. That doesn't like work. maybe Seapunk Hamilton. I don't know. Steampunk. <laughs> I like that. That's I good. Think, I mean, the one thing I, I do want, don't want to undermine is that this is a fairly niche film. I think like it's not. I don't think it's going to have a terribly wide audience, and I don't mean that as, as a criticism. Right. I just mean that like we're using kind of broad terms to describe the film, and I, I don't want to make it seem like it's a like kind of like more accessible film than may or may be. Because I imagine if you showed this film to like seventy random people at least probably 30 of them would just like be really confused and maybe disgusted by it. Uh, and then, you know, maybe another 20 would just be kind of like, well, it was different. I mean, and, but I, I do think there's going to be at least like five people in that 70. They're just going to be like, Oh, this is amazing. Like, I can't believe. Yeah. Never going to forget like, it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, my only real disappointment, I guess, is just that I didn't get a chance to see in theaters. Like, you know, n- none of us could because of the pandemic. And it does seem like the type of film that we probably would play at the theater where I work. So, that's obviously a big disappointment, but um, if that chance ever becomes available for someone, I would say take it. So, yeah. I, I would have paid so much money to see this at a festival screening just because like that is always like a theater filled with a bunch of people who leave early because they decide that they're not going to acquire something. So I, I would just love to see the herd thin, you know, as people just walk out in the first few minutes. But then everybody who remains are super into it and it's like a total experience. Yeah, I would just love to see like an older crowd who's like, oh, you know, it's like a, a, a historical biopic. Yeah, you know, this would be <laughs> oh, cool. And then, like, and then like, oh, that cactus is a little weird. Why are they spending so much time on the cactus? And then just like from there, just yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, I I am because I don't think it's like the most accessible film in the world. Kind of similar to you. I, I am in like an A minus on it. Uh, it's not my favorite film of the year or anything, but it's definitely easily one of my favorites. I think that. And any film like this should be celebrated for just how far it goes and how many risks it takes. It may not land every punch, but when it made me laugh, I found myself having to pause and collect myself. And so I, I give this one a, 
a pretty pretty hearty recommendation. But what about you, Abby? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty up there as well. Um, I think if you had told me maybe like 10 or 20 years ago when I was at like the height of my Monty Python and Kids in the Hall fandom and was like seeking out every single possible thing that was even like remotely close to that. If you had told me that this movie existed, I would have moved heaven and earth to see it. And I think it would have been worth it. So uh, for for that, for uh, for nostalgia and appreciation for uh, 12 and 13 year old outcast Abby, who tried real hard to find everything she could on the internet that fit her particular proclivities, I'm, I'm going to give this an A because yeah, it's, it's, it's so weird and strange and it's, it's the kind of oddness and, and humor and, uh, like mixed with like actual artistic bona fides that are just like super fascinating that I, I haven't seen anything this unique in a really long time. And I think it's, it's worth, uh, it's worth championing that stuff when it comes out, even if it's not going to be everybody's favorite thing. All right. So, well, Abby and I, we're on the A wavelength, but what about you? I'm, I'm not sure for, for where you're going to land on this one. Yeah, I'm not quite A on it, but I, I feel pretty confident giving it a B plus just because like you two were saying, the fact that it is willing to be this uh, outlandish and, and take some A risk and, and swing for every uh, ball that gets thrown its way is something you have to commend because, you know, we don't get many films like this and we may not ever get many films like this again it's hard to know in today's uh, movie making climate so like i said the fact they exist at all especially in 2020 is a small miracle and i do have to commend the this first time filmmaker for uh if he does get another film i would be very curious to see what he does but also the fact that he's able to do this on his first uh first try you know if he doesn't get another film be damned but um yeah i mean i i think it works more than it doesn't there's a few things throughout where i, I just, just didn't really connect with me or i felt like maybe the narrative was kind of slowing the pacing down like you said doesn't have the best pacing in the world for that reason but um i i think what works here is truly commendable and and just a true testament to a uh clearly inspired and uh brazen filmmaker who who wants to do a lot of pretty wild things behind the camera so that's always something you want to celebrate and it makes it pretty easy to celebrate so i feel pretty confident with my b plus all right yes definitely one of the premier uh cult films i'd say in the last year i feel feel pretty uh happy saying that and uh i hope people check it out but yeah like you said well i feel like the ratio is going to be kind of weird and i i'm really looking forward to that like percentage of people that do check it out i know that a lot of people who listen to this show watch a ton of movies and i think that might help you get on this film's wavelength if you like really artistic experimental films like look no further um and even if you don't i do think it's worth checking out this is an oscillope films uh oscillope pictures film so i think you can only rent it on demand or buy it on demand at the moment i don't think it's going to be available streaming as far as i know i think it's available in some uh virtual cinemas right now like for instance yeah, the can, roxy yeah yeah or the screenland armor in kansas city i believe it is rentable there as well yeah plug all of our local theaters let's do it yeah um yeah definitely do say- that if you can Mm-hmm. I will say just uh, randomly, this seems like the most like Sam Nolan type of film. I'm very curious to see if he sees it because it seems like it's very much up his alley, especially as a big Monty Python fan. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hope he uh, it fills us in if he does get a chance to see it. I'm sure he's uh, got it on his radar by now. All right, let's talk about Uncle Frank. Uncle Frank is very a huge departure from some of the other films uh, we've been talking about uh, just in terms of like you know, we've talked about some like kind of wacky films. We've talked about some like really artistically strong films. This one, I mean, I don't know if you two are going to disagree with me necessarily, but this one is like a fairly like kind of middle of the road sort of like, 
you know, it's, it's a gay drama. It's a period piece kind of thing. It's also kind of like a road movie in the 1970s. And I don't have a ton to say about it. Um, I'll, I'll let you two dominate more of the conversation because I, I saw this back in January during Sundance. And so I don't remember a ton. In fact, when I was trying to remember who was in this, uh, I definitely remember Paul Bettany, you know, and, and Peter McDissey, uh, but I could not have told you Sophia Willis was in the film. Um, I hate to say it, as, as much as I appreciate her as an actor, I, I forgot so much of this film. It's kind of scary. Um, but the setup of the film, I'll briefly say it is, like I said, it's in the 1970s. And the Uncle Frank of this film is uh, a man who is secretly gay and his he works at the university where his daughter has just started attending and she discovers his secrets. And she gets to know his partner, um, like I mentioned, Peter McDissey's character, Wally. And through a set of circumstances, when she decides uh, she has to go back home, uh, they both accompany her. And there's kind of a little bit of a coming of age drama mixed in here as well, which is kind of interesting. Uh, her parents are played by Steve Zahn and Judy Greer. We also have Margot Martindale, character actress Margot Martindale, excuse me, um, and Stephen Root. Uh, it, it's definitely an eclectic class cast. It was one that I I had like decent expectations going into. I was a little nervous because this is a Miramax film, and uh, I was kind of like, oh boy, uh, I wonder what they had to do with this to sort of like smooth over some of the PR edges there. But yeah, that said, uh, we'll start with you, Will Ashton. What, what did you think of Uncle Frank? Uh, my, I guess, general thoughts are that I don't know how I feel about the film um, because I have kind of mixed feelings about it altogether. Um, my initial impression was kind of mixed because when it started out, it did feel like your sort of traditional kind of cliched uh, gay drama from like a few years back like it's a Miramax film it kind of feels it has like a 2005 kind of feel which makes sense because it's Alan Ball but um, as it was going along especially as we got to um, the kind of central dynamic between uh, Paul Bettany's character his partner and then Sophia Lillis um, I was really in- engaged with it from the uh, road trip perspective and just kind of getting they're kind of loosey-goosey kind of like free-flowing thoughts there on the road but then when it got to the end I was kind of back to being sort of negative on the film. So I was kind of hoping that our discussion could kind of finalize my thoughts because at the moment I'm very much back and forth on it. Yeah, I I can't help you there because I I definitely like my big contention with this film is that I really enjoy the two central performances, uh, Paul Bettany and his partner, uh, Michael Mc, uh, I, I hope, or Peter uh, McDissey. I, I hope I'm yeah, not uh, Alan Ball's partner in real name. life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I thought that they had a fantastic chemistry. I thought that their story was mm-hmm. really like enjoyably told, and um, I just found myself liking them a lot and and wishing the best for them. I guess I have problems with sort of how the film tells their story and how it handles just the the commentary itself i just i don't know i I thought it was kind of surface level and i i didn't walk away from it feeling the thing that cinema can do the best which is put me into another person's life no matter the time period no matter their circumstances and just make me feel connected to everybody involved in a very meaningfully meaningful way and i'd I'd say this film to me is a bit more of a blip but what, what about you abby what did you think of uncle frank yeah, um, I'm I'm kind of where the two of you are a little bit. Uh, I really like the dynamic between uh, Paul Bettany's Frank and uh, Sophia Lillis's Beth and also with uh, Peter McDissey's Wally. I think that there's 
the the three of them are really enjoyable together. I think Frank is is a really interesting character. Like if he were my uncle, I would think he was super cool too. Um, so I, I definitely, yeah, I and I kind of like uh, where we see Beth kind of going as she develops as a as a person. She's she's becoming more independent. She's asserting herself. She's kind of growing her own identity, and she's she's becoming a person that I think if I were to meet her in like ten years, I would really enjoy being around. Um, but I think the overall plot feels fairly cliche. Um, the, uh, the kind of underlying drama related to, uh, to Frank and his, his dad, who's just passed and, uh, a, uh, an early relationship that he had while he was a teenager feels like a thing that we've kind of seen before. Um, there was, there was a lot of it that it, it felt like it wasn't necessarily treading any new ground. Um, and it does, it does feel like a movie that would have come out about four or five years ago and would have been considered fairly successful at that time. Um, so I'm not, I'm not wild about that. I'm also not wild about the way the movie ends. Um, there's a, there's a pretty dramatic, um, well, actually I think it's supposed to be dramatic, but it feels anticlimactic, um, in, in terms of, of Frank's coming out to his family, uh, because the whole deal is that they're going back for his, his father's funeral. But, uh, Wally has not met, uh, any of Frank's family. And as far as Frank's family is concerned, Wally does not exist. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a pretty dramatic thing that is revealed in a way that is, I, I feel like it kind of takes the, uh, takes the punch out of it. And, um, I'm not, I'm not crazy about the way that that is, resolved it feels a little too neat especially given the time period and the culture that we're in um so there there are some parts of it that i think could serve to be a little more edgy and messy than they are um i think it's it's fine i wouldn't say that it's great i think uh bettany gives a really good performance um and i actually i think all three central performances are really good the ones surrounding them feel a little underwritten and a little cliche yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty aligned with all of that. Uh, I did forget to mention that this was directed by Alan Ball, who uh, pretty pretty well known, of course, uh, probably most famous for uh, some of the film or some of the shows that he's created. He's created the HBO series Six Feet Under, True Blood, and uh, Banshees uh, Cinemax. Uh, he also was the screenwriter for American Beauty. He's he's only directed one other film, uh, Towelhead. I don't know if either of you have seen it. I watched it way 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 back. But yeah, uh, it, I saw it years ago. Okay, yeah, it's it. It came out a long time ago. I think like late two thousands or so. Um, th- that that's a good film. I think a, a, probably a better film than this one. I'm not sure, but you know, there there definitely is like so. So Alan Ball, you know, he he is a gay man, and there definitely is like a sort of like rawness. I think to how he has both written and directed these characters and brought out these performances to have sort of a melancholy, to have sort of like a, a, a conflict or a tension between being proud of who you are, but then also being protective of your secrets and, you know, coming out of an enclave and being able to share your true self with your family. It's all really interesting material. I, I guess I just, you know, I, I didn't come away from this feeling like, like I said before, like I really, really connected with um, just anything Ball is trying to say that is necessarily new here or in any way really all that empathetic to its characters as a whole i particularly did not find the family in this very memorable at all and i I barely remember 
you know, their dynamic and what they go through, because I just think they're very flatly written compared to the central actors. And I, I think that's a crucial component. I mean, it is, a, it is great that the three lead performers are really great to watch here, but without that antagonistic sort of film, it's kind of the same criticism as Happiest Season. It's like, if you don't have like the family dynamic really working there, it it hurts the film a bit and it doesn't, doesn't ruin it. But I do think that it, it kept me from like fully sinking my teeth into this story and considering it better than it really is. So I, I'm a C plus on Uncle Frank, uh, kind of a low C plus. I, I wish it could be much higher, but uh, I am a fan of Alan Ball and I'm, I'm always excited when he has a new project out. I always get kind of bummed out when something he's working on gets canceled, which has happened a few times. But uh, he's definitely a really talented guy, and I hope he does more films. I, I think it's kind of sad it's been a while since he made a film, and I was kind of anticipating at Sundance that he'd be returning you know, to the film scene. And so a little sad that I did not enjoy this one as much. Yeah, I'm, I'm in kind of a similar spot. I would, I would say uh, high C plus, low B minus area uh, for me. I think there, there are some elements of it that I really like. Um, I wouldn't call it a bad movie necessarily. It just, yeah, doesn't make a ton of an impression, um, mostly just because I feel like it's not saying anything that um, that stands out a ton. I think you're right that the family dynamic isn't isn't really fully explored in ways that it could be. Like there's a whole sister character who shows up in the third act who I had no idea was even there. Um, and she ends up being fairly pivotal. So like there there are some parts of it that I, I think are a little a little underwritten or underexplored. Um, but the, the central performances are really solid and I, I like some of the ideas that it's exploring, even if it isn't always new. All right. What about you, Will Ashton? I, I, are you kind of a, where we're at or are you a little higher, a little lower? Um, I'm actually pretty close to where Abby is on this one. I think I'm a little higher than where you are because the stuff I like, I do really genuinely enjoy, including Paul Bettany's performance. I think, um, you know, outside of the Marvel movies, you haven't really seen him that much, or at least I feel like I haven't seen him that much in things. And this was a pretty good showcase for him. And I, I think he does give a good performance. And like you were saying before, John, I think his chemistry with uh, Peter Madisi is really strong. And I really like the character of Wally in this. He's probably my favorite part of it. And uh, I, I kind of wish they had a little bit more time to flesh him out uh, and to really get to know him more. And likewise, I found that the um, just the whole idea of like all the characters that took place in like South Carolina just kind of felt very like New York writery to me. Like it kind of felt like they're caricatures more than they were fully fleshed out people in a way that I felt like pretty much undermined the emotional catharsis of the film, including like you two were saying the end of the film, which felt very rushed and didn't quite feel sincere to me. It just felt like a very movie type decision to end the film on. And uh, like I said before, I, I think I was pretty much with it beyond some of the kind of more hand fisted elements, like the, um, flashback sequences kind of felt uh dramatically inert throughout the film but um i was pretty much with it until like the last like 15 20 minutes and then it started to lose me again like it wasn't fully yeah. engaging me at the beginning and i guess so for me i think because of that i'm going to give it like a high c plus just because i was with it for a decent bit and i, I do think people are generally gonna like this but it just the fact that it falls short on some of the key elements does really hamper it and i think it does bring down the stuff that works really well or at least the stuff that i really was enamored by and and it does result in a somewhat disappointing film as well um for that that reason but i, I think i was a little bit more with this film than happiest season i guess that's one place i'll disagree with you two on but um in the end yeah i i found myself a little underwhelmed by the experience on the whole yeah it's funny because i went into this film 
mostly anticipating a great Paul Bettany performance, and I did get it. But, you know, I kind of, I, I, I don't want to say, I guess I kind of underestimated Peter McDissey here, who I knew would be in this. I mean, he's he's been in like pretty much like everything that Alan Ball's done. They're, they're partners in real life, people don't know. And, you know, you can clearly tell that they have like just a strong creative relationship on top of their romantic relationship. And uh, good old muse. It's, uh, yeah, exactly. Like yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, he just he makes this film really come alive. And I think that he he's the reason it's not a bad movie. Uh, I just wish I had liked it a little bit more on t- uh, in addition to everything else. But Triple C Plus from the Cinemaholics gang. And I don't actually know how you can check out Uncle Frank right now. I think it's on Amazon by now. It is. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's on Prime. On Prime. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't want to say that again. I feel like I always run into that trap. and like, you can stream it right now. And then people, I don't want to disappoint people. <laughs> yeah. No, this was a, uh, yeah, I, I believe Amazon Prime picked up from Sundance as I guess a kind of like awards title, probably for Paul yeah. Bettany's performance, but it doesn't seem like they're putting a whole lot into the marketing from what I can tell. No, I think that's right. Yeah. I, I don't think they're really expecting much at all uh, for, for it to, really make a splash but uh i i think like yeah when we were at the festival it was definitely like that feeling like people were walking out and be like yeah you know it's okay i guess you know <laughs> so we have one last film for you all zappa which i'm a little bummed i'm the only one who managed to catch it this is this is a really interesting one and i, I know you two had it on your radar but different circumstances well i know you want to watch it with your dad and you know that's super commendable i think you really should watch it with him because i wish i had watched this with somebody who is a fan of, of Frank Zappa. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, Abby, if you're going to get to it, I know it's on your list. But this is a, a new documentary, kind of a long documentary. It's a little over two hours. And it is from Alex Winter, of course, uh, who's done other documentaries. You, you'll recognize him from Bill and Ted and all of that. And uh, he also wrote this. And uh, if you don't know who Frank Zappa is, which I know we have some younger listeners who might not be as aware of Frank Zappa's music, uh, he, he's definitely considered like one of the most uh, innovative musicians of his era. Uh, he was a guy who really made music his own thing in from the 60s through the 1980s. He's somebody who you really couldn't put him into a box, you know, like listening to some of his stuff now, they, his band, his uh, 60s band, um, Mothers of Invention, they only came out with two albums, uh, Freak Out and uh, We're Only Doing This for the Money. And those two albums, what's so funny about them is that uh, Freak Out in particular is something that like not a lot of people have really listened to, you know, especially not in full. But it's an album that really like was looked at as the the album um, to to follow in the footsteps of during that time. Like the Beatles pretty famously were looking at Frank Zappa's work and trying to take cues from just how experimental he was. If you're curious, if you're wondering like why the Beatles shifted so drastically from their like mid 1960s music into things like Rubber Soul and Sgt. Pepper, it has a lot to do and Revolver. It has a lot to do with Frank Zappa. It has a lot to do with uh, uh, the album he used to parody Sgt. Pepper, in fact, for kind of being a little bit of a sellout kind of thing. And I, I kind of went into this documentary I, knowing, you know, kind of the, the I guess, not not a surface level understanding of Frank Zappa. Like I, I've seen other documentaries and like uh, VH1 stuff about him and, you know, a lot of it is percolated. But this is definitely the first documentary that like kind of feels like something that Zappa would like approve of. Like it's not a conventional documentary. It's one that is very bizarrely edited, one that's very kind of classic that fuses a ton of different like visuals and sounds. So 
it's like Frank Zappa kind of had a hand in it almost, but not quite because nobody was quite like him. And I, I say that in the sense that like you watch a lot of archival footage, like you see a lot of like the concerts, uh, you, but you see a lot of the music videos, you see a lot of the album artwork and a lot of like the zany things they made. You also see the home movies of him and his family. And you see kind of a touching portrait of that, that uh, I hadn't, that, that was very new to me. I, I had not seen a lot of his personal life before. And I, I think that on one hand, it works really well because yes, you do get this like really fully formed sense and context for this artist. And if you are a fan of Zappa in general, I think that you're really going to appreciate it for that reason. You're, you're, it's going to feel like an authentic and well-told story from somebody who's a real fan of him and understands like why his music was able to stand out, why he was able to find some of the success he did, despite never really having a big hit until Valley Girl in the 1980s, which is something that he only made because it was something due that was made closer with his daughter, Moon. And I think that he's definitely one of the like, oh you've probably never heard of him kind of like rock musicians or uh, guitarists, I should say of that time. But I know that like what, what's fascinating about him is that he has such a spirit of being unique and, and having your own stamp. That's why like my only like real criticism with this film, the one that really like just sticks in my craw is that it, it just, it, it doesn't pay almost enough attention to what was unique about him like it just jumps around too much, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like it, it gets into something, it gives you like a 30 seconds and then it just moves on and there's just not a lot of dwelling. Right. And I think one thing about Zappa that most people can agree on is he's a guy who really strived for perfection. He, he would not stop trying to make a movie until it sounded ex or a movie. He did do films too, but uh, he wouldn't, he wouldn't stop a song or rehearsing a song until it sounded like he heard it in his head, which as somebody like I've written songs and like, I like, you know, something I do outside of film is I, I like to make music and uh, perform and do stuff like that. It's really hard to get a song in your head to, to sound that way in real life. It's just, it's monumentally difficult unless you are like somebody who's like a really great musician and I'm not, you know, it's just a hobby, but it, it's also really hard to take compositions and to bring them to life and to keep pushing them because sometimes you make something and it's close to what you have in your head, but not quite. So then you you feel like, okay, that's fine. That's good enough. And he was not that kind of person. And it's, it's really commendable. So that's why I was a little disappointed that the documentary doesn't sit with his music enough. Like we just, I think it just needed like a couple of moments where we could just listen to a song. <laughs> and like there was so many times it would cut away or move on or just like throw more information at you. And it's so much information. And it's so dense that I just really had a hard time like really following along with it in the way that I wanted to. It's something that I would have to revisit a couple of times, I think, to get the full experience. But I think this is an easy recommend for anybody who is aware of Zappa. I think that if you have never heard of his music or not sure if you have, I think it's still worth seeking out because you will learn a lot about a very important musician, somebody who history has kind of, you know, kept under you know, the radar a little bit uh, for a lot of people outside of the mainstream musical scene. Um, I mean, I'm sure like most people have, like know the name, but in terms of like really understanding who he was an artist, I, as an artist, I suspect that just a ton of people don't, especially younger people like us who were, you know, I, I was, like three years old when he died, you know, like I didn't have any context for who he was when he was alive, of course. So that said, I think that, uh, you know, a little bit of a dad documentary, um, but one that I think people should 
get into, um, you know, if anybody is like interested in rock music, that is not rock music. That's something that totally of its own kind, um, everything from like, uh, really being like anti-censor and political to being funny. You know, he did, he's known as, uh, like the godfather of comedy rock as I think what a lot of people like to call him. And that's definitely true. His lyrics were very intense. You learn all these stories about, um, how he went to jail, you know, kind of Lenny Bruce style for pushing the envelope a little too much. And it's a fascinating story. It's an easy documentary to get through because it is paced so quickly. Like if you don't enjoy a particular moment, just wait a minute because it's going to switch gears pretty fast. Uh, I'm a little disappointed in what it isn't, but uh, for what it is, I am a, a definitely a, a strong supporter of this one. So I uh, I give this one, uh, you know, I was between, a, I'm going to pull a Will Ashton. I was between a B and a B plus and uh, I have to decide right now, I guess. huh? Um, you know what? I'm going to give it the B plus. I think Alex Winter really, you you can really see the passion in this. You can really see that he came through with a film here that was not half-assed. And for Frank Zappa, I think that's, uh, that's definitely the most you could ask for somebody who demanded so much from other people and performers and uh, creative people in general. Uh, so that's, that's Zappa. I hope both of you get a chance to check it out. I have a feeling you will Get get a lot out of it, even even as even if it's not your favorite film of the year or anything. Uh, I think that you'll definitely appreciate the story and uh, how Alex Winter chose to tell tell it. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to check this out. I've been really interested in uh, Alex Winter's evolution as a filmmaker. I know he had the uh, the Showbiz Kids documentary come out earlier this year, which was also pretty well received. So yeah. I'm I'm glad to see that he's been he has not been idle lately. He's been doing a lot of really interesting stuff. Really talented guy. Yeah, no, I'm definitely looking forward to this one as well. And um, yeah, I'm, I, I definitely find Frank Zappa to be a very intriguing and uh, kind of implacable music figure as well as an artist. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely curious to see this. I, I did get a chance to see a few years ago uh, a documentary about him called Eat That Question, which I think is worth watching as well. Yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I also got a chance recently to watch. Uh, I don't know if it's his only film that he directed or. Um, maybe one of the few, but 200 motels, they, they did like a showing of that, which is pretty hard to find. And I got a chance to watch that. And I would definitely, if you want another film similar to 20th century, that's just like pure luency or just like pure absurdism <laughs> all the way through. I would definitely recommend that film. All right. That is Zappa. Uh, I believe it is in like limited release right now. Um, and then I, I don't know. I honestly don't know where you're going to be able to stream this one actually, because it's kind of, uh, uh Virtual cinemas as well, I believe. Is I know it virtual cinema? At least a few of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't have a ton of information on this one, um, you know, because I was, I was looking at the IMDb page and it was kind of scarce, um, so I'm not sure what the, the release cadence for this is going to be. But yeah, virtual cinemas, and yeah, I'm pretty sure that you can, you can check it out in some local theaters if it is safe to do so. But all right, that'll do it for our show this week. I, I have nothing to plug. I got nothing going on. It's been the holidays. We just had Thanksgiving. It was nice and, you know... Uh, to just sort of like get some time off from work and spend some time with family and everything. Um, but I haven't been working on anything. What about, what about you, Abby? Anything going on? Um, not a ton. Let's see. I have a uh, review of Ammonite that will be up later this week at, uh, at uh, crooked marquee. Um, I also have a, uh, a gift guide that I've been putting together for, uh, for the pitch an online gift guide. And that should yes. be up this week as well. So if I'm you're looking for, for gift guides, so I want yeah. that immediately. Yeah, and there's some some pretty awesome things. I got to talk with uh, with Will a little bit about the uh, Fellini box set uh, last week, and that's that's on there along with a number of other fun movie themed things. 
Yeah. And I think Sounds you said good. you weren't uh, too different from our opinion on Ammonite, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's uh, I I think it's it's interesting. I think it's a little bit dour. Um, it's unfortunately going to get a lot of comparisons to uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which does a lot of similar themes in a way that is much more colorful and interesting to watch. Yikes. Yeah, so Sorry. About the same as us. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about you, Will? Uh, anything going on uh, with Cinema Blend or any reviews coming out? Well, I can uh, promote. We have the new episode of Annie Ogre, Toots Ogre, that came out this week. Uh, that came out actually on Thanksgiving. And um, I don't want to give away what the joke is. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it, John. I can't imagine you have. But um, it, it's probably one of our more absurd episodes. Um, oh, I'm just excited. Just in terms of uh, just breaking the format and... Uh, basically it's like an episode that came from another universe is the way we described it so i'm very curious to see what the reaction is i haven't heard anyone say too much about it but um then again our listenership isn't quite the same as cinemaholics so i'm very curious to see what people think of that episode for sure so i would definitely plug that the indian ogre community is it's a humble size but it is an enthusiastic one Uh, i am one of those enthusiastic listeners um any any special guests on the show or is it the core three Nope, just the core three, but um, yeah, I I, def- I don't want to say too much about what the episode entails. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I, I I'm trying to be as vague as possible because like even giving away what the premise is, I think is kind of giving away the joke. But um, I would definitely recommend that one as well as last month's episode. I think these last two have been really fun. All right, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We'll see you all next week to talk about Mank and hopefully a few other interesting releases from the Internet California. I am John Negroni. From the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. From the internet Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. See you next time.